1973, Chuck Colson's life was changed while he sat in his car outside a friend's house. Chuck Colson, you may know, was one of President Richard Nixon's top advisors. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man because he was a profane and vulgar enforcer of Nixon's policies in the White House. Like many around Nixon in the early 1970s, Colson was caught up in the Watergate scandal. But as the turmoil of Watergate unfolded, um, Colson had heard about a friend of his, Tom Phillips, and his wife, who'd been to a Billy Graham crusade and recently put their faith in Jesus. And he wanted to know why and how Tom and his wife's uh, life had been so dramatically changed. So he went to visit them one night during the middle of the Watergate scandal. As they were talking that evening, Phillips, uh, who was the president of Raytheon, by the way, uh, he was talking with Colson about the gospel, pleading with him. Eventually, he picked up a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and read him the entire chapter on pride. <laughs> Have you ever done that with a friend? Hey, I noticed some pride going on in your life. Let me read you an entire chapter about it. And that's what he did. It's a short chapter, but still. One of the things pride, uh, Lewis says about pride in that chapter is this. Quote, a proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. End quote. Phillips talked to Colson about his pride. He told him that pride was keeping him from looking up and seeing something far greater than himself, namely the God who made him and the God who had sent his son Jesus to die for his sins. Phillips asked Colson if he'd be willing to submit his life to God by putting his faith in Jesus, and Colson politely declined. But inside, and Colson writes about this in his autobiography, Born Again, there was turmoil throughout this conversation. So Colson gets in his car, begins to drive away, says he makes it about 100 feet down the street, before he's too overwhelmed to go any further, he pulls off the road just outside of his friend Tom Phillips' house, and he cries out to God. And the essence of his prayer, he says, was this, God, take me, take me, take me. Colson, this great and powerful, powerful man, was there weeping uncontrollably because for the first time in his life, he had put down his machismo and pretenses and fears of being weak and finally submitted his life to something, someone bigger than him. And there he was, outside of his friend's house in his car, alone in the dark, with the devastation of Watergate, the devastation of his life all around him. After that night, things began to change. Colson would never be the same man again. I won't tell you his, soul, his whole story, but he went from being a proud man to, a, to being a humbled man, a servant-hearted man. He did spend time in prison for Watergate, his crimes committed there. He came to know Christ and serve Christ and began a ministry called Prison Fellowship, which is still actively sharing the gospel with prisoners to this day. Charles Colson began serving a new master that night. The hatchet man found himself cut down by God's grace and power. Now today we're going to meet another man, a man named Jacob, who this morning we're going to find out was also like Colson, alone and afraid in the darkness of the night. When God comes to subdue him. To make him submit. Now, Jacob didn't have an army of lawyers or a prison sentence awaiting him, but he was preparing the next day to meet his brother Esau and his army of 400 men, as we considered last week. Jacob is this man who, as we've considered his life 
over these last several weeks. He's a man who was always grasping for a blessing. His name literally means he grasped. He was grasping for a blessing from his father, from his wife, from his wealth. His whole life was this wrestling match looking for an elusive blessing. But by the end of chapter 32 in Genesis, nothing has worked. He's still alone and afraid. He finds himself in the darkness of night when God comes to subdue him so that he might bless him. So we're going to be in Genesis 32, 22 through 33. If you want to begin finding your way there, Genesis 32, 22 through 33. What happens to Jacob in this text and on that night is highly instructive for us. This is what I love about the Bible. It's not just ancient stories. It did actually happen in history, but this story has something to tell you and me today. This story is instructive for us because it's going to show us what often happens when someone meets God. Maybe for the first time, and then for many of us who know God, how God often works in our lives to change our lives. I wonder, have you ever wrestled with God? We're going to see Jacob wrestle with God. We're going to see him be brought to submission. The main point of this text, though, is that it wasn't just so that God could flex his muscles and, you know, exert his power over Jacob. This text shows us that God's blessing was the purpose of this wrestling match. God's blessing comes to Jacob through his pain. God's blessing comes to him through his brokenness. So in this text, we're going to see two things, two points that we'll get our time together. Number one, God sometimes breaks us in order to bless us. That's verses 22 through 26. God sometimes breaks us in order to bless us. And then number two, God's blessing comes to the self-aware. God's blessing comes to the self-aware, 27 through 32. So God breaks us in order to bless us. And then God's blessing comes to the self-aware. This passage teaches us that God blesses the broken. Number one, verses 22 through 26, God sometimes breaks us so that he might bless us. Genesis 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, this is Jacob, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, or eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Number one, God sometimes breaks us to bless us. Picture Jacob there on the banks of the Jabbok. Night has come and his family is gone. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. Jacob was left alone. This has to be the darkest night of his life. He will face his brother Esau the next day, who the last time he saw Esau, last time he saw Esau, he wanted to kill him. Surely Jacob is wondering if time really heals all wounds. His wives and his children and his flocks aren't there to comfort him. And Jacob was left Alone. All the things that have defined his life have been stripped away. And Jacob was left alone. We don't know exactly why Jacob isolates himself like this. Did he just like forget to follow his family across the stream? We're not exactly sure why he sticks around on the other side by himself. Perhaps he needed a few moments to gather his thoughts or wanted to pray. Maybe he wanted to pray. We don't know. But what we do know is that God decided that that was a perfect time to meet with Jacob in his solitude. And Jacob was left alone. 
Moses puts that little detail in there for us so that we are very clear about where Jacob is, what's going on with him. He's alone. Alone, alone. No phone. <laughs> no TV. You know, no one. Nothing but the stars above him and the earth beneath him. Jacob was alone in his solitude. Do you like solitude? <laughs> Some are one person, yes. You introverts, I feel you. I'm with you, man. Do you like quiet places? Or do you prefer noise and crowds? I think many of us are conditioned by our culture to be comfortable, perhaps more comfortable with noise and crowds than we are with silence and solitude. Donald Whitney says this in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. He says that our aversion to quiet is, quote, confirmed by the inability of many to ever be at home or in a car by themselves without turning on some background noise. He says, unlike previous generations, technology now makes it possible for us to enjoy the benefits of news, music, educational content, and more whenever we want and wherever we are. But, he says, the downside is that the appeal and accessibility of these things means the elimination of almost all quiet spaces in our lives. He says, more than any generation in history, we must discipline ourselves to enjoy the blessings of silence and solitude. End quote. Do you enjoy the blessings of silence and solitude? You're like, I have roommates, I have kids. Come on, John. <laughs> Jesus often withdrew from his disciples so he could be alone. The prophets tell the people of Israel to be silent before the Lord God. Elsewhere in Lamentations, the Bible says, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Let him sit alone in silence. Whitney again says, quote, Closing our mouths can sometimes help us open our minds to see things God's way. That silence and solitude have a way of airing out the mind and ironing out the wrinkles of the soul. I have a picture in my office that says, the quieter, the quieter you become, the more you can hear. Perhaps many of us would feel the presence of God in our lives with more regularity if we created intentional times and spaces where we turned our phones off, got away from people, and just sat alone in silence. Now, I know if you have roommates or small children that that's nearly impossible, so it may require that you get up a little earlier in the morning than you would prefer. But I think... As is the case here in Genesis 32, the principle holds true. God often comes to us when we're alone and when it's quiet. One of the ways we try to build these disciplines into our lives as a church is with moments of silence before we begin worship and then after the sermon. Our goal in that is to allow us to slow down, to think what we're thinking, feel what we're feeling, create space for God to begin working in our hearts and minds. God thought this was the perfect time. We don't know why Jacob was alone, but God thought it was the perfect time to meet with his servant. It's only when Jacob is alone in the darkness of night, stripped of all his earthly comforts, that God comes to him. He's, he's He's been met by God before on his way out of Canaan. You might remember God came to him in a dream, a dream with the staircase, with lots of promises and reassurances. That's chapter 28. But here, God comes to him in another kind of way. Here, God doesn't come with a dream and he doesn't come with reassurances or promises. Here, God comes to fight Jacob. The text says there in verse 24 that a man wrestled with Jacob. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And we don't know who this man is. Maybe Jacob initially thinks it's Esau who did an end around and snuck up on him. I tend to think it was an angel who represented God, the angel of the Lord. My main reason for thinking that is over in Hosea, commenting on Jacob's life, Hosea in chapter 12 says, In the womb God took 
uh, excuse me, Jacob took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove, strove with God. Jacob strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. So Hosea seems to think it was an angel. Now, you're like, well, later in this text, if you've read ahead, you're like, it says in verse 30, Jacob says, I've seen God face to face. Obviously, this had to have been God. But then you're thinking, well, Moses says that no one can see God's face and live. But here, Jacob says, no, I saw God's face and I lived. <laughs> I don't think we need to press Moses' language about seeing God's face too literally. When he says that, I think what he means is we can't see the fullness of God's glory and live, not his literal face. So here I think Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord, an angel who represents God, who comes from God to do his bidding. And this wrestling match lasts all night. A man, I think is an angel, wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, this is at least eight or ten hours. I got word this morning that there was a wrestling match between two of our members that ended well, I think, with a, with a draw. Uh, and it was what, 10 minutes? What was the, how, how, how long was the wrestling match? Lockwood? Five minutes. Five minutes. Can you imagine wrestling Austin all night? And Jacob's not a young man. We don't know exactly how old he is, but he's well advanced in years. And yet he's able to wrestle this man all night. He's a man who doesn't go down without a fight. That's why I like him. Verse 25 says that the man decided to hit the fast forward button in the match when he realized Jacob wasn't going to submit. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So this man, this angel, has obviously been holding back on Jacob because all he has to do is touch his hip socket to dislocate the largest joint in his body. So the whole night, this angel has let Jacob think that it was a fair fight. <laughs> this is how I like to wrestle my, my children. Yes, that includes Lydia. She likes to get in the fray too. I like to let them think they're winning and hold back most of my strength. Because if I didn't hold back most of my strength, we'd end up in the hospital. And I'd probably end up in prison. I don't just go full throttle with my kids. Now, I have to get a little more into it with Elisha because he's getting bigger and stronger. This angel is clearly holding back on Jacob. Verse 26, then he said, this is the angel, let me go for the day is broken. Sounds like he's a vampire. He's going to die when the sun hits him. What's he doing? Why does he say, hey, we need to end this? He's protecting Jacob because he knows that if this fight doesn't end, Jacob's not going to make it. He's not going to end up in good shape. So this angel wants to tap out early for Jacob's sake, not his own. So to summarize this little wrestling match, when, when Jacob is preparing to re-enter Canaan, the promised land, God comes to him. But instead of coming with a dream, he comes to fight. He comes to wrestle. He comes to put him in a headlock, not to speak calm assurances and promises over him like he did in chapter 28. This is instructive for us, brothers and sisters, because this is how God often deals with us. Isn't it? Sometimes when God approaches His people, He comes with words of comfort and, and assurance, and boy, we need those. Without those, we wouldn't make it. But sometimes God comes with terror and pain. When God was seeking Adam and Eve in the garden, they ran from Him. When God spoke to Israel from Mount Sinai, they asked God to stop speaking so that they wouldn't die. When Isaiah see, sees God's majesty in Isaiah 6, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. After God speaks to Job, Job says, I despise myself. After Peter sees the power of Jesus, the, the great catch there in the boat, he falls down at Jesus' feet and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
The point is that the presence of the Lord is sometimes traumatic, even for the people of God. Encountering the presence of God is not like reading a Hallmark card. Sometimes God comes with promises and comfort and assurances and love and tenderness, but sometimes He comes to break us because we're like wild horses who need to be broken. When Susie and I got married, my first job was mowing yards. And I've mentioned this several times because it's so formative in my life. I'll never forget that desert. You don't forget deserts. When you spend some time in the desert, you don't forget the desert, do you? That was a pivotal desert for me. I was newly married, had a master's degree, had experience working at all these well-known churches around town. And there I was all of a sudden raking leaves in the scorching Texas heat, wondering what the heck I was doing, working with people who were nothing like me. And I wasn't happy about it, to be honest with you. I remember distinctly several times raking leaves, literally coming to tears, crying out to God, what on earth are you doing? Why am I doing this? What was God doing in those moments? God was breaking me. He's breaking something in me. My prideful, boastful, haughty, arrogant, know-it-all, comparing and competing heart needed exposing and humbling. I thought I deserved better than mowing yards with these amigos. Turns out they were some of the kindest, most generous-hearted people I've ever met. God taught me so much through those men. Why did God wrestle with Jacob this, this night? Why does God take us through pain? Why does God take us by the hand and lead us into the desert? <laughs> well, I like how Piper says, God is usually up to 10,000 things. We might know two of them. So I don't mean to give an exhaustive answer here. Why does God take us out into the desert? Why does God wrestle with us? Why does God bring pain? Well, one of the reasons, at least one of the reasons, is because He wants to break us so that He might bless us. He does that because we usually learn through processes, not propositions. In other words, there are some things that we'll only learn through pain. For example, I can tell you this morning that God is your highest good. And He is. But I don't think you'll truly learn that through a sermon. In love, God will often put us in places of pain that will leave us crying out to Him and walking away with a limp. But through that pain, He blesses us because in the pain, we learn to feel the truth that He is really our highest good. You won't feel that truth until you sometimes, I think ordinarily, feel some pain. God is your highest good, brothers and sisters. I wonder how He's teaching you that. I wonder what ways He has taught you that in your life. This is curious then why we work so hard to suppress and ignore our pain and build comfort. If pain is one of the ways God blesses His people, why do we work so hard to escape it? Now I'm not suggesting that we become masochists who purposefully and glibly walk into pain just to make ourselves feel better. I am suggesting that many of us purposefully avoid pain. Avoid dealing with the hard things in our lives. We don't like digging into our pain because it's hard. It's disruptive. It feels unspiritual. But, brothers and sisters, what if? What if the one who wrote down all of your days in his book before one of them came to be, Psalm 139, wants to meet you in those places that you're ignoring? 
and suppressing and minimizing. What if we love the incessant noise in our lives because we don't like what happens when we're alone? We don't like what happens when it's quiet. What if our frenetic pace is because we know if we slow down, we'll feel things we don't want to feel? But again, brothers and sisters, what if the Lord wants to bring blessing into your brokenness? Scripture is full of promises like Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Or what about Jesus in Matthew 5, 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or what we heard Kyle read this morning, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, what pain are you leaving unaddressed in your life? Where have you been put out of joint by God? What dreams or plans were dashed? What innocence was stolen? What, what's out of joint in your heart or in your body that may be God's way of trying to get your attention? God's blessing often comes to us most dramatically and acutely through pain and suffering. This begs the question, why? Well, as I've already alluded to, pain and suffering makes us desperate for God. And this means, this is a kindness of God. If God is the highest good in the universe, then anything He does to get us to Him is loving, is kindness. This is what happened with Jacob. Did you notice verse 26? The angel says, let me go for the day is broken. The fight's over. Okay, he's trying to end the fight. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. <laughs> the fight's over. Jacob's like one of my kids around my ankle. You know, you're dragging him along. He just won't leave him alone. He won't, he won't tap out. He won't quit. Jacob's in unbelievable pain. But he won't let go of God. This is a crescendo in Jacob's life, by the way. He's been striving for God's blessing his whole life. He's looked for it in his father. He's looked to his father for approval, to his wife Rachel for love, to his wealth and his flocks for value. But none of these things gave him what he was searching for. So God brings him to a place of pain and desperation so that Jacob will finally understand that God is his blessing. I wonder, friends, are you clinging to God like that? Or is Christ just your ticket out of hell into heaven? We meander through life looking to God for his gifts seeing Him as how we access the blessings we want without seeing Him as the blessing. Friends, brothers, sisters, your greatest need is God. Your greatest need is God. God is saying to Jacob and to you, to me, Stop playing around with me, man. Let's get serious. I'm what you need. I'm your blessing. Stop looking for your satisfaction and your identity as a father, as a son, as a business owner. Maybe he's saying to you, stop looking to your identity as a homemaker, as a grad student, as an elder, as a deacon, as a whatever you are. I'm what you need. I'm your God. God injures Jacob so that Jacob will see his need for God. In agonizing pain we can't even imagine, Jacob is desperate for the blessing of God. His pain increases his desperation for God. Have you ever had your hip put out of socket? Maybe you have. I, I haven't. 
I've never dislocated anything, but I know that like, even if my, pink, my pinky was dislocated, I'd be on the floor crying like a baby. Susie knows that's true. <laughs> Can you imagine your hip being out of socket? He's in, des- he's in desperate pain, and he's in desperation mode, but not for relief. He doesn't say, I'm not going to let you go until you heal me or bring me relief or fix my hip. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Often, we miss the lesson God is trying to teach us and merely cry out for relief. And relief is good. And God often grants it. But brothers and sisters, God is the goal. Not relief. May God make us a church desperate for God. A church that longs for the courts of the Lord. Like a deer pants for flowing streams, may our souls pant. Have you ever been so thirsty you panted? May our souls pant for God. That we would long to gather together to sing and pray and fellowship and hear the word preached because We long for more of God, not just to check off religious duties. Because we know we can't live without God. And that as the hymn says, that God is our inheritance now and always. Friends, your greatest need is God. I wonder if you have a hold of His ankle. If you're desperate for Him. Or just for what He can give you. God often breaks us in order to bless us, and the blessing is Himself. Number two, God's blessing comes to the self-aware. God's blessing comes to the self-aware, verses 27 through 32. Verse 27, He, the angel, said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Verse 27, what is your name? Why does the angel ask Jacob what his name is? Why does God ask Jacob what his name is? Was he making sure he's fighting the right guy? <laughs> What's going on here? Don't you love it when God, when God asks questions in the Bible, your ears should perk up because God already knows the answer. So what's he doing? What's he doing? God wants Jacob to own his identity. You know, remember this, Jacob's name literally means he takes by the heel or he cheats. Simply put, it means deceiver. What's your name? And he said, Jacob. Deceiver. Cheater. Striver. Grasper. God is testing Jacob's self-awareness. God wants Jacob to own his sinful nature. His name reveals his nature. Even Esau, his brother, understood this. Back in 27, Esau says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. God is testing Jacob's self-awareness before he blesses him. This is instructive for us. God's blessing is for those who understand their need for God. I wonder if you remember the story Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18. Jesus says they're both praying to God in the temple, but the Pharisee isn't really praying. 
He's comparing himself to all the people he thinks are beneath him and boasting about all his religious activities. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And then Jesus, this master storyteller, the scene pans over to a man in the corner, visibly broken and distraught, barely even able to pray. All he can say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says that only one of these two men is saved. And it isn't the man who thinks he's better than everybody else and who has a high religious and moral pedigree. His religious and moral pedigree don't mean anything before a holy God. What Jesus is teaching us is that what does mean something before a holy God is honesty and humility. Jesus says that the tax collector is the only one who left church that day on his way to heaven. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In Genesis 32, God is sifting Jacob to see if he understands who he is. Not because he doesn't know who Jacob is, but because he wants Jacob to know who Jacob is. He's seeing, he's, he's discerning whether Jacob knows who Jacob is. Friend, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are before a holy God who made you? who breathed life into your lungs, who sustained your heart beating even right now, who's brought you into this room with all these wonderful people to sing the praises of Christ? Do you know who you are and who the God is who made you? Are you the Pharisee or the tax collector? Are you always comparing and competing and chronicling the things that you're doing and very rarely, if ever, broken about who you are? Very rarely, if ever, honest about what's going on and just simply cries out for mercy, crying out for mercy. Mercy, God, just mercy, please, mercy, 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 mercy. I wonder which one is you? Which one is me? We have to name the old man before we can receive the new man. Jacob's honesty paves the way for God to give him a new identity. Verse 28 then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Out of his struggle with God, Jacob emerges a new man with a new name, Israel. Now, interestingly, as you continue to read the Old Testament, sometimes Jacob is still called Jacob and sometimes he's called Israel. It's about 50-50. It's like the Bible is telling us that part of the old man is still wrapped up in the new man. And don't we see that in our own lives? But then come these words at the end of verse 29 that are so pregnant with meaning. End of verse 29. And there he blessed him. And there he blessed him. We don't know exactly what that looked like in that moment because the text doesn't say. Earlier in this chapter, as Jared pointed out last week, Jacob's prayer in verses 9 through 12 indicates that he understands that he has the covenant blessing, that the covenant blessing has passed from his father Isaac to him. He has the personal blessing. He has the covenant blessing of God. So what kind of blessing is happening here? What kind of blessing is he so desperate for? And what kind of blessing does God give? And there he blessed him. Throughout Scripture, blessings are usually verbal in nature. They're usually verbal in nature. In other words, a blessing is often a specific word of affirmation to a specific person. Parents, do you ever bless your kids? Do you bless your children, your grandchildren? Husbands and wives, do you bless each other? Friends, roommates, try this. It'll be awkward and fun. Specific words of affirmation to a specific person in Jesus' name. I don't know all that God may have told Israel or Jacob in that moment. We do know what God said to the true and final Israel, Jesus Christ, after he was baptized. Remember what God said after Jesus was baptized, what the Father said to the Son? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the Father tells the Son, 
the father tells Jesus, his son, you're my son. I love you and I'm pleased with you. You're my son. I love you and I'm pleased with you. I wonder if the conversation God has with Jacob that night wasn't something along those lines. You're my son. I love you. And I'm pleased with you. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, the Father speaks those words over you. Maybe your father or your mother never spoke words like that over you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. And I'm so happy you're my daughter. I'm so happy you're my son. Notice that God doesn't bring up Esau. This is crazy. He doesn't promise Jacob that everything's going to go great with Esau tomorrow when he meets him. It's almost like that doesn't even matter anymore. Jacob's life is no longer defined by his circumstances because wherever he goes, he goes with the blessing of God. One writer says, Jacob received the restoration of a relationship, not the resolution of a problem. Those who have the blessing of God go with God into their problems. God never promises to take your problems away, ever but he does promise to go with you into them. In verse 31, we come to, we learn that the blessing of God doesn't remove Jacob's pain. The sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Limping because of his hip. Picture Jacob getting up off the ground, sweaty, bloody, dirty, exhausted, grimacing in pain. He's just wrestled all night. I mean, also. Where's Austin? I don't know if Austin's in here. He's like, I got this little cut on my nose, you know, wrestling for three seconds yesterday. Can you imagine wrestling an angel all night, what that felt like? And your hip is dislocated. He gets up off the ground. I wonder if he also had a slight smile on his face and a new confidence in his heart as he limps. He limps forward to meet Esau. He limps forward. His limp will be a perpetual reminder of God's blessing in his life. He'll be forever crippled and forever blessed. Why do we short sell and minimize and ignore our limps when they're evidence of the glory of God in our lives, the blessing of God, the mark of God's favor even? Limps often show us that we've been with God. I heard a pastor say one time, never trust a man without a limp. <laughs> Not literally. But seriously, you know, I don't like being around the guys with all the swagger. You know, look how awesome I am and all the stuff I've done and all the wealth I've accumulated or whatever. No, no, no. I'm not impressed by that. I don't think you're impressed by that. He walks away from the Jaybok limping because of his hip. It begs the question for us, would we rather limp through life with God's blessing or skip through life without it? In his excellent book on leadership, Leading with a Limp, Dan Allender writes, quote, the process of leading others with a limp is not what we would have predicted. Do we really have to be that desperate and that deeply exposed to be freed from our narcissism? our fear, our dogmatism, and our tendency to hide. He says the story of Jacob exalts not the struggle, but the goodness of God as he blesses a conniving, undeserving man. No matter how far off the mark we might be, we see in this account the promise that if we open ourselves to meet God, we will not come out the encounter the same. We will walk a new path with an unpredictable gait. End quote. The Apostle Paul was content to walk through life with a limp from God, a thorn in his flesh, even asking God to take it away, but God didn't take it away because God had a lesson for him, namely that his power was made perfect in weakness. So Paul embraced his limp, his pain, because it revealed God's power. When we, re when we realize that we're cripples like Jacob and Paul and we rely on God's strength, we become stronger than we ever have been. I wonder if you believe that. When we own our crippledness and rely on God's strength, we become stronger than we ever have been. But when we're proud and self-sufficient and self-righteous, the smallest breeze of affliction 
blows us over and provokes anger in our hearts. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James says. Friends, I don't have to tell you that we live in a city, a state, and a nation that exalts strength. It's the theme of our songs, the goal of our politics and our politicians, and the ambition of even our own lives. In the church, we're prone to promote the fighters, the warriors, the crusaders for truth, the leaders, the rich, the famous, the influencers. We're prone to exalt the strong. But in the Bible, it's the nobodies, the peasants, the shepherds, the fishermen, the carpenters from Nazareth, the small and the weak ones who are blessed by God. In the Bible, we learn that glory comes after crucifixion and that weakness is the way to strength. Jacob limped into the promised land, reminding us that Jesus limped down the road to Calvary. So why would we think that displaying strength is the way to display God's kingdom? We got it all backwards. God's kingdom is seen in churches committed to the weakness of honesty about ourselves and desperate need for God. And these kinds of churches for which ours is increasingly one, I would add. God's power is displayed through tangible acts of love between brothers and sisters, through humble confession of sins, through honest acknowledgement of pain and anguish, through having a teachable rather than a defensive spirit, by exalting Jesus above any person or pastor or building or program, in these kinds of churches, brothers and sisters, God's people limp through life together with an unusual and inexplicable joy and love that the world won't understand. Why? Because they don't have the blessing of God. And we do. Not that we're any better. We are broken people who need to be broken even further, as Jacob's life demonstrates. But as the world looks into our brokenness, they, I hope and pray and think they will see something else. They will see a strength a love, a joy for one another and for Christ that can't be defined or explained through any other reason. Why does God bless people like us? One of my professors in college always said, God didn't get a good deal when he got you. True or not true? Why does God bless people like us? Why does God bless someone like Jacob? Deceiver. Tell me your name, deceiver. <laughs> Why does God bless people like us? Why does God bless people like Jacob? Well, the answer is elusive until we get to the New Testament. and God shows up again out of nowhere as a man. Jesus, virgin birth. In the darkness with Jacob, God pretended to be weak so that he might bless Jacob. In the darkness of Calvary, God actually becomes weak that he might bless us. 32 says that Israel remembered this account by not eating a part of the hip, the sinew that was attached to the hip. Well, a pastor friend of mine that I actually was just with uh, in, in Turkey, we were talking about this and he said, we have better wounds to remember. We have better wounds to remember. Or as Tim Keller says, Jacob held on at the risk of his own life to get the blessing for himself, but Jesus held on at the cost of his own life to give the blessing to us. So friends, maybe you're like Chuck Colson and Jacob. You find yourself alone and afraid in the darkness of night. You're fearful about the uncertain future in front of you. Maybe you've spent your whole life searching and grasping for a blessing only to be left confused and empty with an aching heart. Maybe you're doing all you can to minimize your pain when it's the very place God wants to meet you. Maybe you think that God blesses the strong, not the weak, so you're pretending to be strong all the time. This text, I think, is a rebuttal to that way of thinking. It shows us that God often breaks us so that He might bless us and that His blessing is for the honest and the self-aware that God blesses the broken, the weak, not the strong. So friends, if you're here and you're not yet following Jesus, we're so happy that you're here. 
You can join with us every single time we meet. But I would ask you to consider this question. Do you think you have God's blessing in your life? Do you think you have God's blessing? And if the answer is yes, what, what is it? What is God's blessing? Is it material? Is it familial? Is it a good job? Is it religious? What is the basis of your thinking that you've been blessed by God? Or is the basis of your thinking you've been blessed by God that you have in the deepest wellspring of your heart, you have a growing desire to be close to God? That you want to grab onto his ankle like a little kid and not let go until he blesses you because you know he's the best thing in the universe. One day we'll all come to Peniel on bended knee and see God face to face. On that day, the blessing of God for his people will be complete. But you can enter into that blessing even now through faith in Christ by turning away from your sins and joining your life to Jesus Christ. On that final day, we will all uh, in one giant group hug, if you will, cling to our God and He will cling to us. And there'll be no more lonely or dark nights. There'll be no more wrestling with God. Only enjoyment forevermore. Let's pray for... Father, please help us to take what's been preached and think carefully about how these things apply to our lives. Help us, Father, to be honest with you and with ourselves and with others. Show us our desperate need for you. Show us that you are indeed our highest good. If we're running from you, running from pain, running from suffering, running from dealing with what needs to be dealt with, please meet us alone by the Jabbok, if you will. Come to us. And if you have to, wrestle us into a fuller awareness of who you are. Father, I think many of us need to wrestle with you, frankly. I think I do. I know that I do. My life is so busy, I don't have time for quiet and still moments of transparency and vulnerability before you. Father, help us. Give us a desire to get into silence and solitude so that we might meet with you. And would you come to us? And even if it requires wrestling, change us into the people you want us to be, making us more desperate and more fully alive in Christ, more confident that we can walk into any situation, even if we're walking with a very noticeable limp, we can walk into anything knowing that we have God and that's all we need. God, make us aware of these things. Build these things into us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.